Am I on? No? Oh, there I am, I think. Good afternoon. I know some of you are still gathering in. If you have a seat next to you that is open, raise your hand. The way those coming in. I moved here in 1998, and um, IHOP started a year later, and I just felt like I stumbled into my destiny when it did start. I had no idea it was going to start when I moved out here. Uh, I met my husband on the night watch in the prayer room. Yeah. Um, Fire in the night, they call it. No, I'm joking. Um, That was 2001. Wow, right. Um, 2002, we were married, and he is a firefighter. Um, And we have a little girl who's 17 months old. So that's a little bit on me. I'd like to know a little bit about you guys. Um, Who is here for the first time to a One Thing conference? Oh, wow, that's a lot of you. Yeah. Um, Who has gotten saved within the last year? Okay. Yeah. That's cool. And who has heard more than two messages on the bride of Christ? Just curious. That's a lot of you. Cool. Who has ever been through an identity crisis? Well, this seminar is about who we are, and so um, I think it often takes a little bit of an identity crisis to actually run into the truth of who we are. So if you've been through one, um, count yourself blessed, because it is probably your doorway, or if you're in the middle of one, of wondering, who am I and why do I exist? It's probably your doorway into discovering um, who you are to God and who God is. And so I want to pray. Um, but rather than just me praying, I'd really like to take a few seconds for us all, just each of you, to, to really talk to God for a moment and to just ask him. Because he is, um, he is the teacher and he lives inside of each one of you. And, and it's actually him who who makes something alive on the inside. I mean, how many of you know you can listen to words all day long? And if there is not that quickening of the Holy Spirit that gives revelation on the inside, it's just words, words, words. And so I just want to take a moment for each of us to talk to the Holy Spirit who um, is living inside of us and ask him, Holy Spirit, teach me, open my heart, and give me the knowledge of God in, in this time together. So... Let's pray, and I'll just leave a few um, seconds for us to each do that, and then I'll pray out loud. Father, we thank you for pursuing us. We thank you, Father, for who we are in your heart, and, and thank you for um, making your heart known to us through Jesus, that we, we see what you're like in him, and we thank you for giving us uh, the Holy Spirit, for giving us your presence on the inside. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, for, um, 
for a deposit from the heart of, of the everlasting God into our hearts today. We ask you for something that remains. I ask you for those arrows of light, um, those, those gifts of revelation that only you can give God. I ask you to, to move across the room today in our hearts, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to who you are and to who you say we are. And we just ask you, God, for a breakthrough in those areas of our soul where we are, where we are spiraling downward and, and where we need help, God. I ask you in a moment that you would give, give freedom, that you would give breakthrough to our inner man in, in how we see ourselves and how we see you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have faith today for that kind of breakthrough because I've been experiencing some of them myself lately. And, um, you know, whenever you get a breakthrough, one of those kinds of um, breakthroughs that just comes in a moment, you still have to walk it out, right? But it's so good of God to give those moments of breakthrough where we see clearly and where something really shifts on the inside. And I, I just have faith to believe for that today for us. Um, and, and again, we still have to walk it out. Like in those areas where I've gotten some breakthroughs in how I see God and how he sees me, I still, the, when I wake up the next day, and that lie still, when it comes at me, I still have to resist it and say, no, that's not true. But at least there's something in my inner man that knows the truth and can resist it. And so I just want to encourage you to keep talking to the Lord throughout this time and just ask him for those breakthroughs in the heart because he really loves to give them. And one more thing before we jump in. I encourage you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and just jot notes because I'm going to try to move quickly and I'm going to be just referencing a bunch of scriptures. And someone once said, and I love it, they said, hearing a message is like reading a menu at a restaurant. It's fun. Like it gets your imagination going and it's fun, but it's not the same thing as ordering the meal and eating it for yourself. And so um, what if the Lord is tugging at your heart for this message, what you really need to do is go deep in it in your own um, study and in your own meditation and your times with the Lord because that's when you're actually ordering the meal and eating it for yourself and not just reading a menu and going, oh, that looks cool, that sounds, that sounds nice. And so I encourage you to jot some notes down so that you just have some kind of outline to, to follow up on later if you want to. Okay, well, in John 3, John the Baptist, who we typically picture as this wild guy with crazy hair and, you know, at least I do, who just only eats locusts and honey and just the man's man who's out in the wilderness, rough, raw, rugged, he says something amazing about himself. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, he's talking about himself, he's referring to Jesus when he, when he says the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. And actually, he was responding to his disciples that were saying, 
John, all of the people are following him now. You used to be the hot shot who was getting all the crowds, and now they're leaving you and they're going to this guy. What's with that? And he opens up his heart and tells them a secret about his happiness. And he says, my happiness is not, is not based on how many people are following me or how big my, my crowd is or how many people are applauding me. My happiness is, is based on the fact that I've heard the bridegroom's voice and therefore my joy is complete. There's something that is settled inside of me. The storm of the search for identity, the search for significance, the grasping for, appro- for approval, it's settled because I've heard the bridegroom's voice and I've got joy inside. No matter whether the crowds are there, no matter whether I have popularity with people, I'm settled on the inside. And that's what we all crave, isn't it? I mean, I cannot think of many more central questions to the human existence than who am I and why am I important and am I important? It's the issue of identity. And by identity, I mean that sense of self, um, the, the ideas of self-worth, of, of why you're important and how do you measure success? Do you believe you're important? And if so, why? What makes you important? And if you don't believe you're important, why do you think that? What makes you unimportant? It's that question of identity, beliefs about why we exist and how we measure our success. Do you believe you're valued and cherished as a person? So who am I? This is one of the most basic questions every human feels, and it's one of the most important questions we can ask. I I think we're actually supposed to be asking the question, who am I? It's actually really important to be asking that, because if you don't ask, It's like we kind of just fuddle through life in confusion. We actually need to ask the question, who am I? Who am I, God? Why did you make me? The answer, the biggest key to the answer lies in who God is. God, who are you? Because when we see him rightly, we see ourselves rightly. Because our existence was hidden in his heart before the ages began. If you've got a Bible, turn real quickly to Ephesians 1. I love this passage. Now, try to take off your little religious ears piece or your just, you know, that churchy way of thinking because most of us who have grown up hearing scriptures, sometimes we just, we just get into this. It's all rhetoric. It's all just words, words. I've heard that since the time I was three. Try for once to just... To just read the Bible as if you had never read it before, it says some amazing things. That if we can get beyond, I've heard that since I was three, actually, I mean, the stuff it says is, is crazy. It's amazing. And so try to do that with this passage because it's quite phenomenal. If I can find Ephesians. There we go. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. For he chose us in him, he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, to himself, 
according to the kind intention of his will. That's a packed sentence. And actually, it's the sentence goes on. But um, the part that I want to highlight is that you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, that means before the stars were put in place, before the mountains, before the earth, before the dust, before all of that, God saw you and he knew you and he desired you. It says chosen. You, you didn't have to. You weren't just a byproduct of chance. God didn't have to bring you forth. He chose you. He looked upon you and he chose you. And, and he made you for himself. And he made you to stand before him in relationship, in love, it says. That's a phenomenal verse. I think of Psalm 139 also that says, um, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So this is the center of our self-worth, that we were created for love. Now what I mean by that is that the uncreated, everlasting God created you to voluntarily experience the pleasure of knowing him and receiving his love. You're not a robot. That he didn't just say, well, you're going to exist um, and you're just going to go through certain motions. He put in you a free will, and, but he made you to experience his love and to be awakened at the heart level to who he is and to give it back to him. Now, that can, again, sound like just a lot of language, but I want you to think for a moment about the pleasure of knowing somebody deeply. We're talking, think about a good friendship, a relationship, a marriage. There is something on the inside that is deeply awakened when we have an intimate relationship with somebody, isn't there? And that's because we were made in his image, and it's because he's longing for us first. First John 4, um, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us, that we have capacity to love and to know and experience the pleasure of, of love because he loves and because he, more specifically, loves you. He loves you. <clears throat> there are many lies regarding our identity. I just even think from the time we're infants, we're introduced to lies about who we are. I mean, think of the things that kids are told in the world, even even as a one-year-old, the lies that they're told about them themselves, um, and then in addition, we we build on those lies by just agreeing at a heart level with with lies, with wrong things about who we are, our value, our reason for existence. But at the root of these lies are lies about who God is. We cannot know who we are until we see who He is. Have you ever heard of the phrase, we become what we behold? I believe it with all my heart. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The transformation comes through beholding. Jesus said it this way in Luke 11.34, The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. So if we want to be a lover, we've got to behold a lover. If we want to relate to God as, as, um, in an intimate way, we've got to behold him as one who has longed for us in an intimate way.
Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. What a verse. Your husband is your maker. Again, you were made for love. And what does it mean to be the bride of Christ? I can assure you this, it's not a reference to gender. And I'm glad there are lots of guys in this room. Because in the scripture, there are lots of men, and we'll talk about them a little bit later, who stood in in their bridal identity. And I know that sounds like a kind of mix of words. But the truth is that men are the bride of Christ, just like women are the sons of God. That I, it's not goofy for me when I'm talking to God to say, I have the spirit of sonship, I'm your son. Um, it's, it's the same because it's talking about not gender, but it's talking about a position of privilege before him. And so being the bride of Christ, it, it's not about being um, feminine per se. It's, it's not about gender. It's about who we are in his heart. It's about a privileged position of intimacy with God and his desire to partner with us. First Corinthians 2.10, God has invited us to know the deep things of his heart. John 15.9 and John 17.23 and verse 26, they say that God has desired to bring us into the very same love that he enjoys within himself. John 15.9, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, um, just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Again, that's another one of those statements that we go, oh, yeah, I've heard that. Have we heard that? Just as the Father has loved Jesus, so he loves us. Now think about this. What is the Father's light, love like for the Son? Is there ever a morning that he wakes up, so to speak, and goes, you know, Jesus, I was crazy about you a few days ago, but right now... You just don't move my heart that much. What is the nature of the father's love for his son? Has there ever been a a day, even a moment, that the fire of his excitement and passion toward his son, the delight that he feels, has there ever been even a moment that it has waned? No. That's amazing. The father is saying, or Jesus is saying, as the father loves me, so I have loved you. I have the kind of love for you that the Father has had for me from everlasting. Now that's nice now, but just remember that when you're in the moment of feeling ugly and ashamed and you just messed up and you're trying to get the strength in your heart to return to God and to talk to him and, and to draw near him. That's what will help you draw near him. Is if you can remember in the moments of your struggle the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they desire me. Jesus longs for me right now like the Father has longed for him. Jesus has delight over my existence like the Father has had delight over Jesus' existence for ages and ages and ages. Um, In John 17, Jesus says, it's not just that I love you like the Father loves me. He's, he's praying to the Father and he says, you have loved them like you've loved me. We're loved by the Father. The Father loves us as he has loved Jesus. 
And then in verse 26 of John 17, Jesus is praying that we will love him like the Father loves him. And so we're going to be brought into the same love. We're actually going to love Jesus with the same loyalty and passion and unwavering um, steadiness that the Father loves him. So God has ordained to have a bride who will be near him, and which, by the way, no other creature in created order has that invitation. It's amazing to think about. It, there's a verse in First Peter that I just love. It's this mysterious little phrase that says, these are things which the angels long to look into. And, and in Hebrews 2 it says, when angels fell, God did not shed his royal blood to redeem them. There is a calling upon you as a human made in God's image that no angel, nothing in created order has that invitation. Um, the angels surround the throne and they worship God daily and, and they are loyal to him and they serve him, but they do not have the invitation that we have to know him at, at a deep, to have that deep intimate exchange that is like unto a man and wife. It's amazing. So God has ordained to have a bride who would be near him. But it's not as though he just says, well, you just be near me while I do great exploits in the universe. No, he actually said, I want my bride to partner with me. And there are things that God is not going to do until we rise up as his wife, so to speak, and, and partner with him. There are lots of verses in Revelation that talk about us ruling and reigning with him forever. So you might think that your life is kind of over after these 70 years, but actually you have a calling. You're actually going to be doing more in the ages to come, billions and billions of years for now. You actually have a calling that's bigger than your 70 years, that the Lord wants to partner with you. He wants you to rule and reign with him. And I don't know what that looks like for each of us, but I know that that's his desire. Well, if you think about in the scriptures, um, the term bridegroom, bride, when it refers to God and his people, the, the revelation of who God is as a bridegroom, that he has emotions that are like unto a bridegroom for his bride, um, it's been progressive. Like in Genesis 1, because God is a romantic. In Genesis 1, he didn't just come out with the full revelation of who he is. He, he um, gave little hints and clues along the way. But at the end of the day, in Revelation 22, it says we're going to stand before him as the bride. It says the spirit and the bride cry out, come, Lord Jesus. There's going to be a global understanding of who we are. Um, but he gave glimpses in the Garden of Eden when he made male and female. And, and how we know that that's a glimpse of, of what's in his heart is Ephesians 5. Paul says, when God made man and wife, he says, I'm actually, he was talking to man and wife in Ephesians 5. And Paul said, I'm actually speaking of a great mystery, Christ and the church. So think of it this way. When God made Adam and Eve, he didn't look at their union and go, oh, what a good idea. I want one. I want a wife. I want a union like that. What a great idea. I'm going to make a bride for myself. No, he had the bride in his heart, like Ephesians 1 said, before he put everything into place. 
And then he created Adam and Eve as a picture, an, ex- an expression of what's in his heart. And so we see a glimpse of, of God's plan in the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, the end of the Bible also ends up with a man and his wife in a garden. It's the great wedding supper of the Lamb. And so the Bible starts off with a man and his wife in a garden, and it ends up with Christ and the bride. <clears throat> so this was in God's heart, but he's, he's given the revelation slowly over the thousands of years. Um, the Old Testament prophets, though, began speaking plainly of God as the bridegroom, and, and Jesus confirmed its truth repeatedly. Um, can you just for a moment real quick, anybody just call out verses that you can think of, especially those in the like the first half where I can hear you um, call out verses where you can think of where it's really plain, where God says like a bridegroom or, you know, your husband is your maker kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Hosea is the whole book is is saying i am like a bridegroom that is loyal to you and pursues you even when you are are playing the harlot with other lovers and and that's a great book if you know the book of hosea at all the story of god's pursuit of you and in his jealousy over you it actually might explain a lot of hard things in your life really because in our disloyalty well, we're disloyal to him. We run after other lovers. And God says, in my kindness, in my jealousy, in my love, I'm going to hedge her in so she can't find her way. And she's going to keep trying to run into other lovers, and it's not going to work for her. And, and this causes a lot of anguish. I mean, how many of you have felt the door slam shut again and again of, this just isn't working out for me? Well, it's because there is one who's pursuing you jealously who's after your love any other verses yeah song of songs although song of songs isn't there's not a verse that plainly says now this book is about jesus talking about the church as his bride but i totally believe it does apply but right now i'm thinking mostly of the verses that um that are really clear where it says, like um, Isaiah 62, where it says, God says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I will rejoice over you. I mean, you can't get more clear than that. God says, I feel about you the way that a bridegroom feels when he looks at his bride and is so happy. I mean, have you ever seen a healthy relationship at the wedding um, and the, the bridegroom can just hardly contain his joy. He's either beaming or he's weeping because he's so excited. Can you imagine that God has those kinds of emotions when he looks at you? That's what that verse is saying. And when I say that, I can just feel like all the arguments of accusation arise because they are in my own heart too or something in me goes, no, that can't be. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about where we have to break our agreement with the lies and we have to begin standing on the truth no matter what we feel, no matter what we've been told all our lives. We have to break our agreement with the lies in order to enter in. 
Well, some other verses, I'll just call them out. You jot them down if you want to go look at them later. Psalm 45, verse 11. I already mentioned this, but Isaiah 62, verse 5. That's as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I rejoice over you. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3. Speaking of Israel, but God, numerous verses of these are speaking of Israel and God's pursuit of them as a nation. But as we find out, in the book of Romans, God has grafted us in to their calling, and he is pursuing us as he has pursued them. Um, Matthew 9:15, Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. And, and he's talking about how his people will fast as a result of longing for him. Matthew 22, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Matthew 25, he likens, um, again, the kingdom to being like a wedding feast and the five wise virgins, the five foolish virgins. Um, John 3:29, where John the Baptist says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. My joy is made full by hearing his voice. Revelation 19, where it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21, it says that the eternal city which is we're all going to live there. It's not like some woohoo out there. It's actually a city that we are all going to live in someday. And, it's, and, it, and the Bible calls that city the bride, the Lamb's wife. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Okay, so... God's intentions are clear. He has set up the whole of creation and natural history to bring us into an intimate relationship and partnership with him forever. But now most of us, if you're like me, we're a little bit slow in opening up to God in intimacy because we have a lot of misconceptions about him. We project onto him our fallen experiences of love, don't we? I mean, even when I said that God feels about you the way, the way a bridegroom feels, the excitement where he can hardly contain himself as he's watching his bride come down the aisle, I would venture a guess that most of us were going, no, can't be. And, and probably that has a lot to do with us projecting onto God our fallen experiences, our disappointments of love, of people who, who showed love to us but then changed their mind. And, and after a series of, I love you, no, I changed my mind. I don't, really, I don't really want to be around you. After so many experiences like that, we just go, I'm just not lovable. Um, or we think he's like our, he, he's like our earthly parents. And, and so we... We imagine that he gets super, super angry at the slightest, um, the slightest infraction of, of utmost obedience. And don't get me wrong, he is angry with rebellion. But there's a verse in Psalm 103 that says, um, as a father has compassion for a child, so I have compassion for you. 
And I tell you, that verse opened up to me when I had a, a child because I don't look at my little girl at one and a half years old and go, will you just grow up and start acting like a 10-year-old? I mean, come on. You should not be picking your nose. You should not be, like, it's okay for us to, like, help them not to pick their nose. But to have fury or rage over small infractions of things that she doesn't know about yet. And if I, being evil, have the sense to look at a one-year-old and go, she's not rebelling, she's immature, she just doesn't know yet. How much more does God, in all wisdom, have compassion on us? He has the ability to discern between rebellion and immaturity. Am I communicating? And so when, when we are like a five-year-old with God, we have to remember he's not like our earthly parents or our fallen experiences of leadership who might not have had the discernment to realize that little 10-year-old or that little five-year-old needed to be taught and raised and nurtured. And the little 10-year-old didn't know everything that he or she had to know. God knows that when he relates to us. He is angry with rebellion. When we intentionally disobey, there, there is anger in his heart, and it's coming from a place of love. Just like a good parent will feel anger toward rebellion, it's because the parent loves the child. But he is not... Um, he's not angry with our immaturity. Does that make sense? This is such a key point for us to understand. Peter is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because I just think he is like a picture of our soul where he had so many issues and he just kept fumbling up again and again. But Jesus loved him. And and Jesus kept calling him forth and, and believing in him because Jesus peered into Peter's soul, and he saw, here is a guy who wants to love me with his whole heart. He just, he's immature. He's not being rebellious right now. He just doesn't know what on earth he's saying, right? And, and God has the discernment. He has the discernment as he relates to us to know that we love him deeply and we want to be fully his, but we just keep messing up. Again, there's a difference between that and the voice of the Lord coming to you in conviction and you go, I don't care, I don't want you, go away. That's called rebellion. Don't help me, don't talk to me, let me, be my, let me do my sin and live in my short-lived pleasure and I don't want to talk to you. That's rebellion. Immaturity is, God, I love you, but oh, I gossiped again today. God, I love you, but I need help. I keep... My eyes keep sinning. I need help. I want to be free of this problem. That's called sincerity. God knows the difference. Anyway, um, most of us are a little slow to opening up to him because in intimacy because we have a lot of misconceptions about him. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says that these little ideas that exalt themselves above the truth of who God is He says they're strongholds. Strongholds are like huge fortified walls that protect a city. So if you have a bunch of lies about who God is, it's like there's a thick wall around your heart that is keeping you from encountering who he really is. And Paul says one of the way to tear down these strongholds 
he says you can't actually you actually can't take a gun or or like you can't bomb this kind of wall out it's made in the spirit and you have to tear it down in the spirit you have to go to those ideas that that where you've agreed with lies about who god is like god is easily angered that's a lie it says god says of himself i'm slow to anger there's a huge difference. And yet, I would venture, I guess, most of us here think God is easily angered. And he says, no, I'm actually very slow to anger. And so we have to tear down those lies and break our agreement. So how do we do that? Well, we've got we've to search out the truth about who God is. What does God say about himself? Well, those verses are a jump start for you that you wrote down. Because they tell you about God's affections and who he says he is as a bridegroom and how he feels about you. And it is a journey. You cannot get this in a day. It will be a journey of years, even your whole life, of growing into the revelation of this. Because there's so many layers of lies and resistance in our hearts. But here's another key, key passage to meditate on if you want to know what God is like. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. Moses had said to God, God, please show me your glory. And God answered, I'm going to go before you, pass before you with my glory. And he says, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And when God proclaims his name to Moses, what does he say? He reveals his attributes. It's fantastic. So he says, the Lord, the Lord God. Again, this is God speaking about himself. This isn't, well, I... This isn't a peewee guy on the earth going, I hope that God is like this. I'll just write down that he is and make God whoever I want him to be. This is God saying, this is who I am. This is my name. This is my essence. This is what I'm like. So we can bank on it because it's not just Moses' wishful thinking, you know, where he makes up his God. This is God saying, I am this way. This is my name. And he says, the Lord, the Lord God. Full of fury and so stinking mad because nobody on the earth is righteous. Uh Uh-uh. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet here, I love this little phrase, the latter portion. He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I love it because God just says, I'm not off left. I really do have things that I care about. I really am angry with rebellion. And typically we hear that. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And we, again, project our harsh, our experience of harsh leadership onto God. But God's not harsh. He's just. Which means his decisions are just right. And this reference, I don't leave the guilty unpunished, is actually really good news. It means he's not weak or careless in his dealings with sin. It means that he's, he's a jealous husband who's going to call all things into account. It means if you've been abused in your life when you were 3, 10, 15, he saw it and he cares. And he's not a father that just goes, oh, well, things like that happen in this earth. Sorry, get over it. He actually cares about sin. And he goes, there's coming a day I'm going to fight that sin. And I am going to everyone who has not repented is going to pay fully for what they have done. That's actually really good news for us. It's his love. But he's not mostly mad. He's actually mostly glad. Psalm 45, verse 7 says, 
You love righteousness, O God. You hate wickedness. Therefore, you have more joy than anybody else on the earth. Okay, a few examples of people who stood in their bridal identity. David, he messed up a lot of times, but he kept running into the heart of God, saying, saying, you are full of mercy. I'm the one you love. John the Baptist, as we talked about already. John the Beloved. And Paul, they all lived in the revelation that they were the ones God desires. And I love the fact that they're all men. So, so we can't, it doesn't leave us the option of saying, oh, it's just for the women. How do we abide in this reality? Well, quite simply, we receive his word and we respond to it. We've got to receive the truth about who he is and we've got to decide what our response is. Is our response going to be to close our hearts and say, just sounds too good to be true? Or are we actually going to fight the good fight of faith and believe it? And are we actually going to let the truth sink into us? Are we going to meditate on it long enough to, to let the truth sink into us and change us and expose those lies? And I guarantee you, if you pray a prayer like, God, help me to know you as bridegroom, he will be faithful to rearrange events in your life to help you. But I tell you, it may feel like he's not answering your prayer because you may have some Hosea action going on in there where you pray to prayer, God, I want to know you intimately. And he goes, I want to know you. Let me help you. And so he might bring in some things that kind of shake your world up a little bit and reveal lies that you've believed. And when that happens, your response has got to be, oh, you're helping me see the hindrances in my heart. You're helping me so that, I can, so that I can agree with the truth and so I can respond to your voice. Amen? We need to end right now, right? No time for questions or anything. Okay, so God bless you. I'll just pray as he's walking up. God, we, just, we ask you for again for revelation. I just ask you that this message of how you feel about us would sink into us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, as we're leaving, um, if anybody is planning on staying in this...